Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shorkey, and you are listening to Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show on current affairs from a left and African perspective. It's been a while. We've been on a bit of a hiatus, but now we are back and we're happy to be back. If you caught our last episode, it was a great interview with Professor Vivek Chiba of NYU on his latest book, The Class Matrix which everyone should check out. And I'm very excited about the conversation that you will hear today, which is an interview I recorded with Professor Helen Thompson of Cambridge on her latest book, Disorder, which tries to make sense of the origins of the overlapping geopolitical, economic, and political crises affecting democracies around the world in the 21st century. It is an especially pertinent conversation in the wake of Russia's invasion into Ukraine as energy and the future of energy underpins everything that we are currently facing. So without further ado, I'm going to play that conversation and a reminder to like, subscribe, find us on whichever podcasting platform you listen to. And here's my conversation with Professor Helen Thompson on Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Joining us on the program is Helen Thompson, who is Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University. She is the author of Oil in the Western Economic Crisis, China and the Mortgaging of America, as well as Might, Right, Prosperity and Consent, Representatives of Democracy and the International Economy. Between 2015 and March of this year, Helen was a regular contributor to the Talking Politics podcast and has written articles for the London Review of Books, the New York Times, the Financial Times, as well as the New Statesman. And she joins us on the Africa's a Country podcast to discuss her latest book about geopolitical, economic, and political crises and energy. And that is called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, which came out this February with Oxford University Press. Uh, Professor Thompson, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you, William. Yeah, appreciate you coming through. I mean, it's it's as I'm sure you've heard quite quite significantly and 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 frequently by now. Um, you know, talking politics. I think, as as many people have have said, it was something of a of an institution. And in fact, one of the first first podcasts that I listened to, and one of the last podcasts that I listened to regularly once I grew tired of of podcasts as I became a podcaster myself. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just want to extend that, that acknowledgement of the, the fabulous work that you and, and David did and wanted to begin by asking, you know, after, after being a podcaster for so many years and interviewing others since the publication of your book, how's it felt being on the opposite end of the microphone? Yeah, I, 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 I've enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed doing talking politics, obviously for, um, a long time and I got to have some you know really fascinating conversations or David and I, I should say and others um, got to have some really fascinating conversations with some really interesting people and almost certainly would have had the chance to talk to outside the context of of talking politics I've done you know, quite a number shall we just say of, of podcasts and other people's podcasts over the last um, few weeks and I've got or since really in the middle of February, the latter part of February. And I've got, I suppose, a, 
a broader idea now of the different ways in which people approach podcasting mm. and there is quite a variety um, to it I, I think that I've liked answering questions um, particularly when they've kind of you know been quite broad ranging and I think that there are ways in which one can communicate in podcasts that are well, I was going to say important, but that's not perhaps the quite the right word that allow one as an academic mm. um, to communicate more effectively, perhaps, certainly mm. for a larger audience than when academics are just talking to academics. Mm. And do you think that's something that the experience of being on Talking Politics also kind of sharpened that ability to sort of have to present your ideas in a way that's succinct and accessible and packaged in that way? Or has it mostly been when you're on the other end of, of having to answer the questions on all these interviews that you've learned that? No, I think the, the thing about talking politics was, which has been different than what I've been doing for the last two months, really, um, is that it was always something different. And sometimes that meant that I had to do some considerable work before the podcast to have some thoughts about what we were talking about and mm. to read the books when we were talking to an author and think about what that person was trying to say and obviously for the last two months because most of the podcasts that I've been doing people have been asking me about my book obviously in a particular political context not least the war in Ukraine Mm. Um, I've in that sense been stretching myself less not actually because the questions haven't been very interesting and sometimes people have asked about the same kind of thing but come at it in really different ways that have made me stop and think about what I was saying and refining my argument but I haven't been talking about the same range of things that I would over a few months period in when I was doing Talking Politics and one of the things I really liked about Talking Politics was the fact that it made me engage more broadly with the world. Mm. And probably I wouldn't have been able to write the book that I've written, Disorder, if I hadn't had that experience. That demand, in some sense, that Talking Politics created for thinking in such a wide-ranging way and trying to connect quite a lot of different things. Mm. And, and to now transition to talking about uh, Disorder, which is the book you've just published. One thing that I was quite struck by is when thinking about the established approach to political analysis on, I guess, what one could could broadly call, um, I get the left, uh, for lack of a better description. But when thinking about political analysis of the current conjuncture, the, the way to approach it I've found is often in terms of the changing ideological landscape and the genre of analysis would sort of neatly periodize history into hegemonic moments, crisis moments, and interregnal moments. And history is understood as a succession of different ideological horizons, whether it's a post-political one, an anti-political one, um, a populist moment, or whatever um, is, is, is the buzzword, I guess, at that particular point in time. And reading your book, I was pretty struck by 
how, dare I say, quite materialist it is in, insofar as uh, I think the thing that you use to weave the thread of how to narrate the various geopolitical, economic and political crises that the world has faced um, is, is energy and sort of the dilemmas that are perennially faced when it comes to figuring out how to access energy when the distribution of those resources across, across the world is, is, is uneven. So, um, yeah, I guess to start, I wanted to, to know if this is, if you'd interpret your book in, in this vein, um, and if, if so, when the project began, was that your intention to sort of make an intervention which, uh, so to speak, wanted to go back to uh, a more materialist understanding of, of political crisis and change? Yeah, in a way I could start at the end of the question. I think the answer is both yes and no. Um, I think that when I started thinking about writing this kind of book, which was probably sometime in 2017, though I wasn't in a position to start writing a book um, then because of my commitments in Cambridge. I don't think that I thought about it really as a materialist intervention to use that, that language. I think that I thought about it as trying to make sense of the events of 2016 mm from the experience of sitting in one particular Western democracy, the United Kingdom, where one of those shocks of 2016 uh, Brexit had happened and where I thought there was a quite poor understanding of the causal path that had led to that moment of the referendum outcome in June 2016 in the United Kingdom. Now, I certainly, from the start, thought that in trying to explain the turbulence of the 2010s, which is the way I came to think about it with 2016 acting as kind of like a pivot, if you like, um, to that, that I was going to tell a history in which energy was going to be quite central. And I wanted to explain both the geopolitical side of energy and the economic side of energy and the way in which, particularly in the 2010s, the the geopolitics and the monetary story went together. In fact, I actually would say through the whole of the 21st century that the geopolitics and the monetary story um, went together. Um, but initially, I also wanted to try and engage with a set of dynamics that I think might be best described as either cultural or civilizational, not because I necessarily think that they were civilizational, but civilizational rhetoric, in particular as it was coming out in a number of European countries, and I'm including in that Russia as a European country because the, the kind of discourse that Putin was starting to engage in um, was, I think, civilizational and was sort of projecting that into to Russia. And I thought that, sorry, into Europe. And I thought that there was a history to tell about the relationship between um, religious civilizational questions going back a very, very long way in Europe um, mm. and the territorial politics of Europe, including the potential instability of some of the states sitting between Germany and Russia, mm. and Ukraine, of course, being um, one of those. 
But the more that I tried to think really systematically about what I wanted to do in the book when I came to developing a prose proposal and then talking to publishers about it, it became clear to me that actually um, trying to do all those things that I wanted to do was just too difficult. Mm-hmm. And in ditching the, whatever we want to call it, cultural civilizational theme and settling in the way in which I did on three histories, the geopolitical, the economic and the history about, history about Western democracies, I knew that I was really going to offer a fairly materialist interpretation. And that bothered me in a way because I had had this other thread to it. And I, I didn't actually, I don't actually think that the world can, the political and economic world can be entirely explained in materialist terms. Mm. Even in terms of the book I ended up writing with the third part of it, I think in the democracy part of it, I think I do move away from materialist explanations mm-hmm. there. I think that anybody who was a more systematically materialist would would have concentrated much more on those arguments or, or frame anyway coming from those arguments whereby democracies are stabilised by economic development. And I actually quite strongly reject that position. I think that democracies have always got a specifically political problem in terms of the dynamics around democratic excess and aristocratic excess, and also in terms of the problem of nationhood. And I don't think any aspect of that, you can, you can, you can take some of the democracy, democratic excess and aristocratic excesses, you can explain that in economic terms, but I don't think that's a sufficient explanation. And I certainly don't think once we bring nationhood into it, that a materialist explanation will, will, will do. So I think, what I'm offered is is sort of a materialist explanation with some quite heavy caveats to that too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in terms of thinking of 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 democracy, um, while while we're on that, um, I was I was I I was quite struck by your discussion of uh, democratic and aristocratic excess and and the theme of of democracy as developing in tandem with nationhood and nationhood providing a basis under which democracy is woven to get woven together and underwritten but at the same time also pro- uh, posing a problem for for democracy um, and I, I felt that to be distinct from the typical story that we're told about the crisis of liberal democracy in contemporary times as being threatened by, by nationalism and and nationhood. So, could you unpack how uh, your interpretation of that parts with the sort of conventional story we're told about um, liberal democracies, other threats to liberal democracy today? Yeah, I mean, I think that this really goes back to my initial preoccupations uh, in 2016 with the way in which. Brexit was being understood in particular and the whole discourse of populism around it. I know it wasn't the only thing that was being labelled populist in 2016, but I was sitting in you know Britain in that, in that um, year. And it seemed to me just sort of almost like self-evident that any idea that nationalism and nationhood were, if you like, alien interventions into democracy, that democracy was somehow being compromised by this burst of nationalism as it was understood. 
was just a fairly ahistorical way of thinking about how representative democracy came about in the first place um, and the ways in which representative democracies had developed. And I would go beyond that and say, actually, the way in which from some point in the 19th century or late 18th, 19th century, that nationhood became the predominant means by which all claims to political authority and all forms of court, almost all anyway, um, were legitimated. Um, it isn't just a question in a light of democracies needing nationhood at a certain point. Um, modern states, whatever the form of government laid claim um, to authority and the right to exercise power in some sense by claiming whether reasonably or disingenuously or just completely incoherently um, to be the representative of a nation. And if you looked at the way in which this played out for countries or peoples, I should say, you know, rejecting imperial rule, mm. rejecting the rule of European empires, they claimed independence in the name of a of a of a nation. Um, that seemed to me to be not something one had to think about very hard to see that it was true because it was still the world in which I, you know, came to some kind of like political um, consciousness being born in the late nineteen sixties. Um, so the whole way in which the nationalism is a problem for democracy debate was framed in. The, from the latter part of the the 2010s just seemed to me to be like really just odd and could in some sense I think only be explained by the way in which political analysis particularly in 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 the west I would say had just become detached from historical understanding at some point, I would argue from the 90s, in some sense, I think it was a function of the whole end of history plus globalization um, mm. narrative. And so I you know, had thoughts about this going back a, a long time, indeed to the book that I spent quite a lot of time writing in the late 90s and early first part of the um, 2000s. So, in a sense, I wasn't really visit, re, you know, I, I wasn't engaging with new thinking for me um, in making some of the arguments in, in, in the democracy part of the book. What I think I did that was different was that I was more interested than I had been in the past in the question of the way, the particular ways in which these languages of nationhood also acted as their own destabilizing force within democratic politics. So what happened to the language of, 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 of nationhood when you really have um, significant migration into democracies? And particularly what happens when they're long-standing democracies and the language of nationhood has taken shape in a long time in the past. Um, and then that historical story that's told about it has much less resonance to the citizens who are presently living there. And I think in the United States that there's an even more acute version of that because of the way in which the foundational history of the United States, obviously, particularly in relation to slavery, but not only in relation to slavery, is, is being politically revisited over the last few years so, so um, acutely. So compared to things that I'd written in the past, I was trying to think about the ways in which 
nationhood was simultaneously necessary for representative democracies and a really serious problem for representative democracies that could destabilize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to park. I want to park the discussion on democracy to 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 return to, um, you know, the so-called I guess end of history thesis, which mm-hmm. which for thoughts of the post nineteen eighty nine world order as as here to stay and and so on and so forth. Um, and when thinking about the prelude to nineteen eighty nine, uh, the the usual story that we're told is about ideological confrontation and how uh, neoliberalism as a constitutional and ideological project had won out against its competitors. Um, and this led to, to, to the way things have unraveled now. Um, but to, to now, I guess, provide an, an entry for you to talk about the significance of energy and oil in particular, I want to, quote something from from your book, which is on page 107, um, where you say that making the economic story of the 1970s one of any ideological ascendancy necessarily downplays the structural material causes of the decades crisis that played out regardless of the prior dispositions of politicians and central banks. In particular, energy casts a huge shadow over the apparently ideological debate in the 1970s about what the state could and should do. Politicians on both sides of the Atlantic had an acute incentive to retreat from regulating capital flows because they needed easy access to dollars to pay for larger oil import bills. So could you talk uh, a bit about why the 1970s was such an important period and why, as you consider it, we are still sort of grappling through a lot of the the fault lines that the 1970s uh, unraveled? Yeah, I think that there are, well, probably three different things, um, big things that are important to understand about the 70s on the energy side and in different ways with one caveat um, that we live in something of that world now. The first of them is the one where I think that there's a new juncture, if you like, since, which is the fact that in 1970, US domestic oil production peaked and it wouldn't reach a new peak until the shale, the latter years of the shale boom in the, in the 2010s. So from 1970 onwards, the United States was on a fairly rapid trajectory to becoming the world's largest oil importer, having been largely domestically self-sufficient. And that was a big shock, not only to the world economy, um, but it was a big shock geopolitically as well, because its domestic capacity to produce oil had been an important part, in fact, in some ways, a pivotal part of the United States' rise as a geopolitical um, power, including in the first part of the 20th century, its both ability and willingness to import, sorry, to export oil abroad, in particular to European um, countries. And in the wake of that, for the US, then, as you just said from the bit that you read, the United States couldn't really continue with the monetary and financial system that it had put in place, Bretton Woods in 1944. That had been premised 
on the assumption that the United States had a large trade surplus and that that trade surplus was sustained in some sense by domestic oil producing production um, so that the US wasn't didn't have a significant import oil import bill which distinguished it from all the West European um, countries and in an energy world in which that was no longer true the monetary and the financial system I think couldn't survive because of a premise on which it rested had gone and so the United States had an interest in international opening up international financial markets in which it would be able to borrow you know very large sums of money that would allow it to um, finance the trade deficit that was coming from becoming such a large oil importing um, state and one part I think of the way in which it responded to the financial and monetary side of that actually simply deepened American financial power. It made the dollar even more important in some sense than it already um, was. Um, and if you had these open international financial markets, um, that the important, most important country within that system um, was the United States. Mm. The second thing that happened was that Britain was no longer in a position by the late 1960s to exercise any kind of imperial power in the Middle East. And so in 1971, it withdrew from what was called East of Suez. Um, and the United States, though, in this sense, was in no position militarily to replace British imperial power, not least because the US was embroiled in its you know, disaster in um, Vietnam. And so what we see really until the end of the decade, until the aftermath of the Iranian revolution is a vacuum in which the Americans rely on the Saudis and initially the Iran, when Iran was still being ruled by the Shah, to take responsibility for Western energy security, which now doesn't just include the European, West European countries, but includes the United States itself. And that was not a very stable arrangement, even before the Iranian revolution happened and the Shah um, was um, gone. And, and really, I think everything that's happened since where Western interests in the Middle East are concerned come out of the, the difficulties the United States has had in replacing Britain as any kind of stabilizing external power um, mm. in, the, in the Middle East. The third thing that happened was as the European imperial world was coming to its final end, I would say, with Britain's withdrawal from the Middle East, um, that energy nationalism took hold in oil producing countries, not just in in the Middle East, um, but you know, like in ultimately else some other places as well, um, like in, yeah, in the in in Venezuela, a bit later, and Mexico. So in Mexico's case, there was a history of it in the nineteen thirties. Mm. Um, and so we have essentially the banishment of the big Western oil majors that have dominated oil production for the entire history, really, of oil production until that point. The banishment of them from, from the Middle East, the rise of energy, state-owned, state-controlled energy firms, the most significant of which will, by the end of the decade, be Aramco, the Saudi um, oil firm. And... Given that by this point, the Soviet Union was actually the largest oil producer in the world with American output declining, 
we see a world in which most of the oil reserves in the world are being controlled by states who aren't Western, which aren't Western states. And this, I think, is a huge shock mm. um, to, to Western countries. It represents a really profound geopolitical shift that the age of oil began in the age of European empire still, and the age of the beginning of American in the United States rise as a as a geopolitical power, and these big oil companies, international oil companies, have been a pretty important part you know, of that story. And then that world ends, and you know, like Western democracies find that events in the Middle East can cause very destabilizing consequences mm. um, for them. And that wasn't a world that you know West Europeans or North Americans were were used to. And I think we can still see some of the legacy of the shock of that now, including what's going on in Europe. In the sense, look, Europe, you know, this expect this idea that Europe should be able to, you know, choose the terms on which it can import energy, so that it doesn't have to accept, you know, like uh, oil from and gas from Russia. It doesn't have to mm. accept, you know, like oil and gas from regimes that people don't like in the in the Middle East. But the reality is, is that Europe does have to. Um, import uh, oil and gas from parts of the world that A, doesn't control and B, many people don't like. And they're just like painful facts of life. Mm, mm. And <laughs> European countries, I still think in some sense that lots of European governments or European citizens haven't really got their heads around. Mm. <laughs> I, I would I would say if, if there was a, an alternate world where the book could have a, a, a different title, Painful Facts of Life would... <laughs> candidates um and and speaking of that i mean i guess it, it 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 registers profoundly throughout the book the ways in which um energy access or lack of energy access becomes sort of the driving constraint that shapes how states act uh that shapes their foreign policy uh that shapes um monetary policy and so on and so forth and so you have uh, throughout the 20th century and the 21st century, as you narrate these uh, various attempts by uh, different countries to 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 achieve relative energy independence, but then having to, as you've just pointed out, face the the painful facts of life. And I just remembered as you were giving answer that, in fact, we have to go earlier than 1970s, as you were pointing out, to to the Suez crisis uh, for when. Uh, you know, Western Europe was confronted with, with, with the fact that it had to to start looking elsewhere in order to access its energy uh, to the Middle East um, or to the Soviet Union, now Russia. So, uh, could you tell the the story of of European energy dependence um, mm. and how the development of that in the 20th century sort of reverberates to 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 the to the dilemmas it's it's facing now in the midst of the the war with Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we start at the beginning of the twentieth century, when oil was starting to become important as a as a resource, as an energy source, and it was really initially consequential in military terms rather than in economic terms. I mean, there was it became important economically in the United States first because that's where the first mass car society developed. But in the first part of the 20th century, when a lot of geopolitics is about oil, the primary concern is using oil as 
the basis of naval power, so like oil fuel navies. Um, and I think that there's a very strong awareness in the Europe among the European powers, um, with the possible exception of Austria, which is the one European power that actually did have a domestic and domestic oil um, supply. Although the internal politics of it in Austria were complicated, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire were complicated. You know, Britain, France, and Germany, and Italy, they all realised their governments realised that this caused some real problems, uh, and that in a world in which the two large oil producers were the United States and Russia, that there was the potential for this energy source really to eclipse European power. And I'd say that that is the way in which the 20th century turned out. But the, what we saw in the first part of the 20th um, century was attempts in very, very different ways um, of these powers to try to solve their energy dependence problem by controlling the places where oil production took place. Mm. So prior to the First World War, you know, Britain and Germany are both trying to develop a position in the Middle East once oil was discovered in Persia in, in, 19, um, in 1908. The French, a bit less so before the First World War actually happens, but by the time we get to the end of the First World War, it's Britain and France that have got their imperial foothold um, in the Middle East, and it's Germany that shut out of it absolutely entirely. Um, and even the um, corporate interest that Deutsche Bank had in one of the oil companies, then called the Turkish Petroleum Company, later called the, the Iraq Petroleum Company, Germany was forced to hand over Deutsche Bank's share to the French. And I think you can then understand some of the context of interwar Germany, not just actually the Nazi period, but part of the Weimar period, around what does Germany do about this problem of the fact it not only has acute foreign and foreign dependency, but it actually has no empire, like the British and the French do. Um, and in this sense, I think what one might understand uh, the Nazi strategy as, first of all, we have to have an alliance with the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union can provide us with oil, Nazi-Soviet pact period. Mm. But then Hitler turns into you know, uh, a genocidal con war of conquest in order to take control, a, a bit, attempt to take control of Russian or Soviet, and they then are, you know, resources. He's obsessed about, you know, obtaining control of the Baku oil fields um and germany had made a bid during the course of the latter part of the first world war to control those same um oil fields and i think then the story of the end of the second world war and the beginning of the post-war period is well what are these european countries going to do when war and empire are essentially not allowed in the British case where the Middle East is concerned, it actually is not only still allowed by the Americans, but encouraged by the um, Americans. Um, and the answer will be that they 
need one of the powers, it turns out to be Britain, to hold on to some kind of imperial position in the Middle East. Because mm. in the post-Second World War world, the Americans actually don't want European countries, West European countries, to be importing oil from the Western Hemisphere. Mm. So either from the United States or from Venezuela or Mexico, they're sufficiently concerned about long-term oil supply themselves that they essentially want the Western Hemisphere for themselves. But nor do they want the European countries going back to the Soviet Union as they've done in the late 20s and the 30s, um, because this is the Cold War. Mm. So you have this period between like 1947 and the Suez Crisis where Soviet oil is taboo uh, and the whole focus of West European energy strategy has to be, or oil strategy, I should say, has to be on the Middle East. Um, but once Eisenhower pulls the plug on the British-French-Israeli operation um, against Egypt in 1956 by putting his immense pressure on sterling on Britain's um, currency, the West European governments are left with this problem again. It's not so bad for the British because they still have got an imperial presence in the Middle East. They um, got British companies who are operating in Kuwait in particular. It's possible for Britain to pay for that oil from Kuwait in sterling. But for the French and the West Germans and the Italians, is they need another option and they don't want a situation where their energy and security in the Middle East is dependent on the Americans being able to veto mm. the military action that would you know, facilitate that energy security. And so we see the various turns. We see, uh, you know, the turn to Soviet oil. Uh, and in France's case, we see an attempt really to bring Algeria into the European economic community, the discussions of which are underway at the time of the Suez crisis. Mm. Um, Algeria, oil and gas had been discovered in Algeria in 1956, the same year as the, the Suez um, crisis. So the French idea initially is that this French colony, as it still then is in 1956, 1957, will be integrated via the Treaty of Rome into Western Europe. And then it, that there will be a unified Western European market in which the Algerians, where French companies will be very active, can sell this oil. But as we know, that then runs into the independence movement in Algeria and Algeria will become independent in 1962. So that way doesn't really work uh, either. Though de Gaulle did initially negotiate a quite strong position for the French companies themselves um, mm. in in um, Algeria. So I think that you know, there is a history which goes on into the post-war world. It's not just actually the first half of the 20th century of Britain and France in particular, using imperial power, using their you know, their presence in the Middle East and in, in North Africa to try and fix their resource problems, their energy resource problems, but that they don't work out in, in either case. In the end for Britain, because Britain has too weak a currency to be able to support those kinds of military imperial commitments. And the Americans were able to press very quickly and successfully on Sterling's weakness to bring Anthony Eden's government in, in Britain to a halt over the Suez intervention, or to halt, I should say, the Suez intervention. And in France's case, you know, because it can't actually maintain Algeria as a colony um, in, uh, in, with the um, 
demands inside Algeria for independence and the, the effective breakdown of, of, of French power mm. um, there. And once empire is not part of the solution, then the West European countries have got to manage a set of energy difficulties, mm. partly by relying on the Americans, ultimately to provide um, naval security in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, at least from 1979 um, onwards, and partly by deepening the relationship with the with the Soviet Union. Mm. And and thinking about how that relates to to America, there's there's a um, a standard story also that America similarly aspired to to project its imperial muscle across the world so as to secure access to energy supply uh, once its own oil production uh, was outstripped by domestic demand and people would would sort of you know the, the usual story is that you know the Iraqi invasion was primarily a war for for oil um, in the Middle East um, and I mean are you convinced by that sort of characterization of of that war but uh, but also thinking about that period in history um, as it led up to 2008 um, and and the shale boom in the United States which which kind of um, savored from from having to to import um, oil as, as has been as had been in the in the decades prior um, yeah how do we make sense of of, of America's place in the world once it had stopped being able to to produce oil sufficiently mm. well I think here the the first crucial watershed really is the weakening of the Soviet Union and I say the weakening rather than the dissolution of the Soviet Union because it's really the events in 1990 around Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait uh, and the fact that the United States can fight a war to push Iraq back out of Kuwait with the United Nations and author the United States can fight with the United Nations mm. authorization because no Soviet veto comes you know, in the in the Security um, Council. So although it's not the first time that there's been any kind of American military intervention in the Middle East, it's the most sustained bit of of, of American military intervention hitherto that had been seen by that point. And I think it's quite hard to see how it could ha have happened outside the context of the end of the Cold War. So I think that the United States starts, if you like, the end of history, you know, era, um, so to speak, uh, by trying to turn, if not the Middle East into an American sphere of influence, at least to really strengthen American position in the region and sort of set some parameters allowing what can happen there, including, it must be said, in the 90s, you know, like sponsoring the, the peace process, the Arab-Israeli, you know, the, the peace, the Palestinian-Israeli peace process and through the 90s until that later, you know, like breaks down, you know, like at the end of the, um, the decade. I think... The second Gulf War, the second Iraq War, has got to be understood, though, in the context of the consequences of this move, and in particular the fact that the George Bush Sr. didn't fight a war to remove Saddam Hussein from power 
it was very cautious about pursuing yes. regime change in Iraq. So the upshot of the approach to the first Iraq war was to keep Iraq under sanctions for what turned out to be you know, like 13 years and such sanctions that restrained Iraq's oil exports. Mm. Now, once you then added in that there were some, not as strong as they would come later, sanctions on Iran's ability to produce, export oil, plus Libya's, that meant by the turn of the century, at the time in which it was evident that China's demand for oil was going to rise quite considerably as China's growth took off, China's integration with the world trade um, order, that three of the significant Middle East and North African oil producers were under sanctions mm. regime. And I think that's the context in which the decisions that the Bush Jr. administration made about the Second Iraq War have to be understood. So I think at the time, at least as I recall it, there was a kind of narrative from some people that the Iraq war was an oil war and it was all about, you know, George Bush's administration being close to the oil companies and Halliburton in particular, Dick Cheney's relationship with the oil um, industry and it was a war for oil companies' profits. I don't think that's really the right frame for understanding the Iraq war, but I do think it had a very strong oil motive, mm. which came out of the fact that supply constraints were beginning to, well, these medium-term supply constraints were beginning to come into vision mm. as China's demand was going to be taking off. And the Bush administration wanted a way of removing sanctions on at least one of those three countries. Mm. And Iraq's oil reserves um, are pretty big um, and underdeveloped, certainly underdeveloped. And the hope was that Iraq would then be a place where more oil would be produced and that it wouldn't be oil being produced by a state-owned energy company. Mm. Mm. That it would be possible for the oil majors, the Western oil majors, to have contracts in the new Iraq, and that turned out to be the case, but there were no contracts handed out until 2009, I think the first ones were handed out, so six years after the war finished, supposedly finished, because actually it was one thing, you know, getting rid of Saddam Hussein, it was quite another stabilising Iraq in any, in a, in any way um, mm. whatsoever. I think if we then go on to the 2010s, what's interesting is, though, that actually at the same time as Iraq's turning out to be a lot more difficult as a bet on rapid increase in oil production, actually the shale boom is beginning to take off and actually the United States manages through the 2010s to increase oil production probably more rapidly than any country's ever managed to do you know, like mm. before. So it, it, it wasn't Iraqi oil that came to sort out, so to speak, the world's oil supply in the 2010s, it was American shale oil that came um, to do that. So if the, the second Iraq war was in part born at least out of American concerns about foreign energy dependency, uh, the solution turned out 
so far as it was a solution, um, not to be the exercise of military power in the Middle East, which turned out to be incredibly difficult. It turned out to be a shell boom that was facilitated or was made possible, I should say, by the financial conditions of the post-2008 monetary world in which the Federal Reserve Board was practicing quantitative easing, pursuing zero interest rates and created a credit environment in which there were strong incentives for investors to funnel capital into the shale industry. They were looking for, the investors were looking for a return and were less concerned about how profitable or not shale production would turn out to be. Mm, mm. It's interesting keeping that image in mind and, and thinking about, um, you know, the juncture we're at now where one, there is an energy revolution underway or one that needs to happen as of necessity, heading towards decarbonization and trying to save the world from, from climate catastrophe. I, I wonder if you, if, if when thinking about sort of in, in the recent years, the, the big commitments made by capital to invest in green energy, is, is that something where there's been follow through? Does the monetary environment today, uh, bearing in mind the, the pandemic that we're still sort of wading through, make it um, uh, even something that seems plausible in the near future that the, the kind of investment that is required um, to transition away from fossil fuel energy is going to happen? And as that transition is happening, um, how do you see the sort of geopolitical, what do you see the geopolitical landscape looking like? Um, you know, it's, it's if you could, if you wanted to sort of um, create a periodization of history and which superpowers benefit from their, their lucky access to a, a natural resource in the age of coal, it was the United Kingdom as, as the power ahead in the age of oil, the United States, and, and everyone touts China as being um, in the lead to sort of benefit from from a transition to green energy as sort of rare earth minerals becomes the, the sort of prized prized resource. Um, yeah, what geopolitical kind of um, ramifications do you see all of that happening? Um, and do you see as as um, as intense a jockeying for for spheres of influence that could secure access to the resources which um, would be beneficial in 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 a decarbonized world? Um, there's like at least in Africa, there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, um, this place is is resource rich in the kind of rare earth minerals, which are are crucial for for uh, creating green infrastructure. Is Does that mean that there's going to be a sort of renewed scramble? Um, and yeah, how do you broadly see the, the geopolitical maps being redrawn? Yeah, if we start off on the, the financial side first, mm. I mean... I think that there was clearly a shift that went on 2018-2019 in favour of capital being invested in green energy rather than in fossil fuel energy. And it's a really sharp difference between the beginning of the decade, you know, that there's a disproportionate amount of capital generally going into shale energy at the beginning of the um, decade. Um, and by the end of the decade, um, many investors, particularly Western, don't want to invest in any kind of oil and gas companies, whether they're shale you know, or you know, the majors like 
BP, etc. Oh, um, Exxon Mobil. And there's a very much, I think, a, a zero sum game mindset to that, i.e., that the only way in which anybody can be serious about green energy transition is to make sure that there isn't any more in, uh, investment in oil and gas. Now, it is also the case that investment in oil and gas has been plummeting since the middle of the decade anyway, since probably late 2014, 2015, because of the crash in oil um, prices um, at that um, time. And usually investment in oil and gas would fall when prices are low because nobody's got any confidence that they can make money out of future projects um, with low um, but I think something did significantly happen 2018, 2019 uh, around um, investment um, in the green energy um, sector, in green energy sectors. I think if we think about the financial and monetary environment now, I think that the situation in which the pandemic brought about, which was really a commitment to QE infinity, um, means that the that monetary and financial environment is pretty conducive to um, what might turn out to be quite a lot of speculative investment, not all of which will, you know, like come off in terms of realising profits for um, you know investors. We're not going back to the pre-2008 monetary and financial um, world. Mm. And, and that means as well that governments, and certainly Western governments anyway, are not really constrained about the amount of money that they borrow and the amount of money that they spend, certainly compared to what was the case, like say in the 1980s, the 70s, 80s, or the, the 1990s. They can run very sizable budget deficits and the part of that borrowing if they so choose, can be um, used to um, finance green um, investment projects and in some sense finance a green industrial strategy um, by, 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 by borrowing. I think it's, it's more difficult for a number of emerging market countries where there are currency um, issues, but I don't think that there's a significant debt constraint um, on um, on Western governments in this in this. Um, respect. I think the difficulty now is that people understand a lot more clearly than they did in 2019 that the supply of oil and gas isn't going to take care of itself or indeed actually that matter the supply of coal isn't going to take care of itself. Just because we need to move away from it in the medium to long term it doesn't mean that it can't cause present tense problems now by constrained supply and so that idea that we can only be serious about the energy transition and climate if we are different to oil and gas investment, I think that's going to be quite a harder position um, to sustain, given the events of the last of the last um, few um, few months. I think geopolitically, what's interesting is, as you said, William, China looks like it has advantages. It looks like it has advantages on the manufacturing side, just because, for instance, it dominates, you know, like solar panel manufacturing. Mm. But more crucially, it looks like it has advantages on the metals side, rare earth minerals um, in particular. I think the question is, though, how much of that present advantage comes because China's been strategic about rare earth minerals since the 1950s, actually, since the Mao period. 
since my beginning of the Mao period or even at um, that, and how much of it comes because actually that the distribution of metals under the Earth's surface is particularly concentrated in China. And I'm not sure that anybody really not quite knows what the answer to that <laughs> question. Mm. You know, like is yet, you know, it could be that when the United, if and when the United States engage in major minor operations, that the United States will be as abundant in these minerals and metals, you know, as China is. It might be that that's not the case as well. And I know that I think there's some sense that that, that China might be the most advantaged in just in terms of the arbitrary distribution, you know, like metals on the Earth's surface. I still think it's difficult to imagine that the metals are as arbitrarily distributed as oil, gas and coal mm. turn um, to be. Now, I think even though there's a potential for a more even distribution compared to oil and gas and coal, I mean by that, it's clearly the case in the short to the medium term, the places where the mining is already in operation, including obviously, as you say, a number of you know, like African countries, is going to encourage geopolitical competition around those countries that have those resources. And we can see, I think, that China's not only been interested in domestic extraction, it's been interested in foreign extraction and dominating the supply chains around that um, extraction. And if it turns out to be that actually it's pretty difficult, the domestic politics of mineral extraction in the United States, including because it involves obviously mining, which mm. is not seen as climate friendly, then I think it's not difficult to see how actually you can have, there could be quite intense competition in those parts of the world where the where mining is already, metal mining is already taking place at considerable, uh, considerable scale, but in some sense that maybe Western countries will let the so called like, almost like dirty extraction processes take place elsewhere. Mm, yeah. To deal with the domestic politics around domestic extraction. Mm. And thinking, and maybe as a as a closing question, um, thinking about those domestic politics, um, that they are yeah, this image of 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 maybe citizens of of a Western country being happy to let to offshore the sort of dirty kind of uh, sort of clean energy mining uh, mm. feels like 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 a likely a likely sort of um scenario in the future and another one that you project towards the the closing chapter of the book is um sort of as as decarbonization happens and um energy consumption has to be sort of curtailed and for example the the car which was once this the symbol of transportation and, and industry that much of the world might end up um, taking on certain class resentments as it's as it's mm. a, 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 a thing that most people are are, are going to be deprived of um, at least because many people at, in the beginning won't be able to afford electric vehicles, for example. Um, so I'm yeah I'm curious to you, how do you and thinking back to your to your, your thoughts on on democracy how do you how do you see a lot of these politics playing out considering the transition and considering how 
extent of the transition is likely to be and the enormous sacrifices I think it's going to require from uh, a citizenry that had hitherto been um, alienated and despondent in in the sorts of ways that uh, a lot of the scholarship now uh, accurately describes. Um, and, you know, we were, we were chatting before we recorded uh, about how, you know, I had to reschedule this interview because in South Africa we're facing um, enormous uh, energy consumption uh, constraints. And so power is, is practically rationed is, is the way to, to, to put it. And, and, and so um, that's been a source of tremendous annoyance and chagrin among South Africans. But in a way, we've kind of been used to this since 2008. But uh, in, in a world where these sorts of compromises are going to be expected from, from citizens, uh, maybe that's a grim, a grim outlook, but it seems to me that energy consumption is going to have to be curtailed to some degree. Um, how, do you, how do you see that playing out um, in lieu of all of the various other interlocking uh, crises that your book speaks to? I mean, I think that it's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, that's the first thing um, to say. Uh, I mean, in some sense, you could argue that the nature of class politics, in some sense, is the nature is about relative degrees of energy consumption. Mm. So in some quite literal sense, mm. you know, the poorer that you are, the less energy that you consume. The richer that you are, the more energy that you um consume um and if the future and i agree with you william you know is in the direction of reduced energy consumption then the question immediately arises well who's reducing their energy consumption in this situation is it the people who use the most who are used politically to prevailing you know in distributional conflicts given what's happening in western democracies in particular since the western since the 1970s or is it the people um who use the least um uh and for whom will find themselves priced out of energy consumption by you know like rising prices because clearly if we go down the, the if we're in the world of reduced energy consumption you know the problem can be dealt with by the state engaging in rationing which is what you were describing you know like happening in south africa at the moment or it can be dealt with by markets and people being priced out um, by mm. allowing energy to become more um, expensive. Um, and I think anything that goes down the second of those routes is going to you know, produce a, you know, pretty serious you know, political rebellions, you know, like in, in, in Western um, democracies. Uh, so this, that isn't, I, I think there's sufficient fear about that happening mm. that you can already see governments involving themselves in one way or another in subsidising people's energy um, consumption. Um, you know, like whether it be putting restrictions on how far the energy companies can raise um, prices or whether it giving giving actually direct support to people's income to help them buy um, mm. energy. Um, I think the difficulty really comes when it isn't just a question of price, but it's a question of just simply obviously constrained supply or obvious shortage like of supply. And you can see some of this thing in relation to 
the response of European Union countries in particular to the war in Ukraine um, and the you know request essentially that citizens make some sacrifices in their and European citizens make some sacrifices in their energy um, consumption in order in order to support Ukraine. Now I think what's interesting about this and is that even a year ago, certainly before the pandemic, this kind of politics, I think, would have been unthinkable, sort mm. of saying to European citizens, oh, you need to turn your you know, thermostats down, you need to use your car unless um, you need to work at home three days a week, which is one of the things that was in the statement last week from the European Commission and from the International Energy um, Agency. But I think the dial has shifted a bit. It's perhaps the pandemic that has played its part um, in that. Nonetheless, I still think it's a bit different saying, please, can you turn your thermostat down a couple of degrees mm. and actually facing the kind of power shortages that you're talking about that are happening in South Africa at the moment on a on a daily basis. Um, whether Western democracies could cope with a political reaction to that kind of energy rationing, I think, is a whole is a whole other question. Mm. Um, but they will have to cope with it. Um, well, they'll have to cope with some version of it um, anyway, um, because I think the energy predicaments, both on the fossil fuel energy side and on the need for the energy transition, um, are not going to provide short term solutions. Mm. Mm. Uh, there aren't short, way, short term ways out, there might not even be medium term ways out mm. um, at the moment. Um, it's going to be, you know, like it's, it's going to be a very, very um, bumpy ride. Mm. Mm. And and these are the the painful facts of life. Um, but but thinking, yeah, I mean, in terms, you, you concluded the the book with 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 these lines uh, where you say how within those limits democracies can be sustained as the likely contests over climate change and any consumption energy consumption destabilize them will become the central political question of the coming decade. Now, um, I know, yeah, you're not one to to provide a set of prescriptions, but where where do you see, I guess, um, reasons for, for, for cautious optimism or what, what kind of political project that's out there um, do, you, do you think could sort of um, shift the dial as far as, as, as future fortunes are, are concerned? Or, or, or is it really going to be a matter of um, the sort of rules of the game have already been determined and it's, it's about um, how to apply pressure on states to sort of manage um, grim calculuses in a way that, are, that has less um, cost on, on, on people and especially the marginalized? Do you, do you see, a, I, I guess, a way out? Um, which might be a bit of an unfair. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I yeah, I do. Um, in the sense that I think that the politics of energy consumption is not as taboo a subject as it was a few years ago. Um, in that sense, I think that the tragedy of the war in Ukraine has played a part as I said, in, in shifting things and um, positions that would have been unthinkable in Europe mm. 
um, last year are now not. I think the pandemic in Europe as well changed things because it involved us living our lives in European countries in really radically different ways, ways in which I think nobody could have imagined before we actually did that for, mm. um, you know, in the United Kingdom's case for um, more than a year. Uh, and even now, you know, the, the legacy of it's there every day. Uh, that there isn't a sense, I think, here that things have gone back to normal um, in in any way, and that in some sense, so people have had to reimagine how they live their lives and what that means for their sense of 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 who they are. And at its best, I think that that can produce some kind of collective purpose. At its worst, it can obviously be very divisive in the different ways in which people respond to that same um, experience. So my grounds for optimism, I think, is just that awareness of the complexity, including directly in relation to the energy question, is so much higher than it was. I mean, I know that you know I've been trying to talk about energy for one way or another, including you know at times on talking um, politics podcast for quite some time now, probably since at least I don't know 2017, maybe maybe even 2016. Mm. Um, it's much easier over the last couple of months than it has been before by magnitudes mm. easier um, because you don't have to go into any explanations about why this stuff is important. Mm. Mm. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it, Professor Thompson. And I, I think your yeah your book is is is, is an important intervention in that respect. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, William. Yeah, thank you so much. And a reminder to our, our audience, we've been talking to Professor Helen Thompson, who is a professor of political economy at Cambridge University and the author of the recently published book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, which came out with Oxford University Press in February of this year. Do get a copy at whatever, whichever bookstore is easiest for you. Uh, professor Thompson, all the best. And thank you very much once again. And to you, William, thanks very much. Mm -hmm.